Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Massimo Pilucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Galef. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Massimo, today we have a guest in our studio with us. Uh, I'd like to welcome Victoria Pitts-Taylor, who is the Professor of, so- of Sociology and Director of the Center for the Study of Women in Society and Coordinator of Women's Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Um, she's also a Professor of Sociology at Queens College, CUNY. Um, Victoria is the co-editor of the journal Women's Studies Quarterly and the author of many articles, chapters, and books on social and cultural aspects of the body, medicine, and health and wellness. Um, her uh, most uh, or her upcoming book is going to be for Duke University Press, and it's called The Brain's Body, Neuroscience and the Politics of Embodiment. It's due out in late 2013. Victoria, welcome. Hi, how are you? Good. Great to have you on the show. Thanks. So how about um, just starting out by telling us something about the book that is not out, or in fact, not finished yet? No, uh, it's not finished. Right? We, typically, we talk to authors who have, whose book are already out. So this is an interesting, you know, we're looking forward to something that's not Work, even finished. Works in progress. Right. Uh, well, I've, I've written several books on the body and body practices. And uh, I came out of that work in, um, from, from my training in sociology and my interest in women's studies. And so, uh, so I, I wrote a couple of books on, on body practices. Uh, from feminist perspectives and sociological perspectives that really look at how people use the body to create a sense of identity in the 20th, late 20th and 21st century. But my work in body studies, as we call it, um, which is a sort of roughly interdisciplinary area that encompasses the sociology of the body, it encompasses medical anthropology, uh, sociology of medicine, feminist studies, uh, queer theory, uh, in this area, for a couple of decades, we've been writing a lot of books about the meanings of bodies and body practices without really looking at the biological body very much. And so, Which sounds my, odd as a biologist. Isn't it incredible? <laughs> right. No. But uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, I think uh, folks in my field would, would speak to biologists and, uh, and query how much you really think about the symbolism and metaphor and uh, layers of cultural meaning um, uh, with which we saturate the body. Uh, or the historical variations of bodies, or the uh, the various ways in which people uh, invest uh, cultural codes into bodies. Would you mind giving an example? Sure. So uh, one of my projects was to uh, edit a cultural encyclopedia of the body, which is a 600-page, two-volume description of different body practices in different times and places. And so we had entries on hair, and uh, this, hair's a great example. So... Um, Covering the hair is incredibly important in many cultures and religious contexts, and uh, a veil could mean something uh, in in one context and mean something completely different in another. For example, uh, veiling is often a religious uh, signification to suggest piety, and on the other hand, uh, in Algeria, for a certain period of time in the 20th century, the veil uh, signified uh, nationalism, a kind of uh, huh. a revolt against colonial French colonial. Um, so, th- so the same. 
artifact or the same, however you Precisely. want to call it, can have very different, sometimes even opposite. Exactly. Meanings, right? There's been a lot of really interesting work on hair. Uh, so the uh, the Afro, the African-American Afro, in the context of the civil rights movement and the black power movement, uh, became a really interesting, contentious uh, symbol of of black rebellion. And it was even contentious and controversial within African-American communities themselves because traditionally in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, uh, black communities embraced white hairstyles or hairstyles that uh, imitated white hair, the hair straightening products, for example, that would make the hair straight, take it, take it out any uh, curl or kinkiness. And the black power movement and the civil rights movement re envisioned the black body as sort of naturally beautiful and the 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 afro became a symbol of uh black pride uh, mm-hmm. so so my work in the body has for a very long time looked at the incredibly rich layers of cultural political and historical meaning invested in the body and there's just a whole lot of interesting work at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century that does that kind of uh that kind of analysis and yet uh that work has really ignored the biological body. And, th- and there's a reason for that. We left the biological body to you. <laughs> we, we <laughs> to thought, the biologist. To the well, biologist. Yeah, that makes some sense. Precisely. So, so body studies in my field, in the humanities and cultural studies and in the social sciences, for a very long time, uh, meant the social investment in the body. Right. And we, we left the biological body uh, to, you, to you all. So uh, before you, you it, proceed, now, when, when you were describing um, your example um, a minute ago, uh, I was thinking, okay, as a biologist, I don't really have much to say about that because as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, certainly human hair has is, is the product of evolution and it may or may not be adaptive in particular forms. Uh, I don't, adaptive stories can be told about all sorts of stuff, but largely we don't really know. Um, and yes, there is definitely variation um, among human populations, some of which is genetically based. And that's where the biologists would probably stop and say anything else beyond that that people do with it, it's in fact cultural and it's built on top of a basis of biology. I mean, after all, you do have to have a body and hair in order to do something with it. But other than, than that, it seems like the, the job of the biologist stops there. But you're saying not necessarily. Right. So we kind of had a, um, we had a detente or a sort of um, a, a cold war. You. The hard sciences could deal with the biological body, uh, and the the soft sciences and cultural studies could deal with the symbolic or, or, or cultural or semiotic or discursive body, if you will. Uh, but, and and for a long time we were satisfied with that. But isn't that just what it means to have different fields? How is that a, a cold war? Well, um, <laughs> because n- despite the fact that we really left the biological body to biologists, we were dissatisfied. With, with what biologists with were what doing biologists, with it. <laughs> precisely. <laughs> exactly. So, so there's a great deal of critique uh, coming out of feminist theory, but also out of science studies and uh, a whole range of interdisciplinary fields in the social sciences and humanities that that uh, didn't r- truly leave biologists alone. Uh, what, w- what we did was we critiqued the production of meanings around the body in the sciences. And so there's a, a tradition of science studies scholarship and a tradition of uh, feminist studies of science, too, that looks at how cultural sim- and symbolic and historical metaphors get worked into knowledge that's supposedly neutral and objective oh, about the body. So, in fact, uh, it's not so much that we left biologists alone. We left biology alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were very critical 
if I may speak for you know for a whole group of interdisciplinary folks, uh, we were very critical of of what the scientists were doing uh, with um, with the biological body in the sense that uh, the scientists did not have it, uh, a very sophisticated reflexivity about its own cultural, social, and historical investments. Right. So what, what's an example of something that scientists wouldn't necessarily recognize as being the influence of cultural biases of theirs that they think of as being objective and scientific that you would dispute? There's a really great recent example of this. Uh, there's, a, there's many examples coming out of feminist science studies, but one of my favorite recent examples is this, uh, this study by uh, Meg Upchurch and Simone uh, Vojtova, uh, who looked at the descriptions of neurons and glial cells in neurology textbooks. Uh, and these are you know, 20th century and late 20th century textbooks where they describe uh, the neurons, uh, unsurprisingly, as these very active uh, cells that, uh, that are involved in neurotransmission. And the descriptions of glial cells are uh, really, as for most of the 20th century, as these kind of unimportant like housekeeper cells. Right. That just sort of do the cleanup work and the kind of support work for the for the neurons, and and what they argue is that uh, in fact it's not that the descriptions are very gendered, uh, and they're really modeled on a kind of domestic model of uh, a division of labor. Yeah. So this idea that uh, you know sort of the, the important uh, neurons are these kind of active neurons and the, the sort of uh, sorry the important cells are these active neurons and the sort of less important and not not so interesting cells are these little housekeeper domestic you know mrs cleaver cells uh, and um <laughs> wow. but, what's, but what's so interesting is that you know recent recent discoveries about glial cells and their their role in supporting neurotransmission really changed the description of of how important they are and they became in their words, they became more masculine. They became more active and important uh, once they were uh, sort of uh, uh, welcomed into the kind of uh, the well, so was sphere. the change? Sorry, was the change in how important people see the glial cells' role as being, was that change due to new information being discovered about what they do in the brain, or was it due to recognizing, oh, we were, we were making a mental analogy inadvertently to female housekeepers, and that's why we didn't think they were important. <laughs> Cer- certainly the former, not okay. the latter. Certainly the, um, the, the change comes about only because there are sort of new discoveries uh, that, that re- rethink uh, the importance of the kinds of work that glial cells do. It's not so much that glial cells, you know, became something wholly different than they ever were, but but rather that um, the importance of the work that they do became uh, became more salient. Mm-hmm. Um, so so now when when I read, let me stop you there for a second. Yeah. So let let me play a little bit of devil's advocate there. So when I read that example in in your uh, chapter, um, I thought, okay, but that's that's a good example, um, and I'm sure that that one can find many others of sort of the sociology slash psychology of scientists. Right. Um, so the, the fact that you're the, the people, um, especially early in the 20th century, most, if not all, neurobiologists were males, white males. And uh, and therefore, the fact that they developed certain metaphors that they reflect that probably reflected their own prejudice in terms of sort of so- social roles and so on and so forth. It's interesting, I suppose. But it's not necessarily even that, that, that much surprising, probably. But it is interesting as a reflection of the sociology of science and of the psychology of the needle scientists. But the fact remains, as, as Julia pointed out, of course, that when, when new empirical discoveries came about, um, about the way in which different cells in the brain work, um, that was what changed 
um, people's attitude, scientists' attitude about these things. In other words, the, the change came still from the inside. The, if there was something wrong yeah. with the science, the change did come from the inside. How, however, I think there are plenty of uh, scholars of science and um, sociology of knowledge who would suggest that the that the that what guides new discoveries. Uh, is closely linked to these kinds of assumptions, and so, um, so perhaps we might argue that that we wouldn't have been as content w- to uh, put glial cells in the background if we didn't have such a kind of bifurcated view mm. of of uh, the division of labor. Um, I, I don't I don't know that we can make that case. I think that, I think Meg Upchurch and uh, Simone Vochtova make a, a pretty interesting argument, but I raise that as an example not to um, Suggests that that's how feminist thinking, that's where feminist thinking ought to stop. I raise it as an example to show, on the one hand, how important it is to look at the cultural and social investment in the um, in the body and how that affects scientific the production of scientific knowledge. And on the other hand, I also raise it as an example of of the limitations of that approach. Right. So the limitations of that approach, of course, that um, if if feminists and um, other kinds of critical scholars in the humanities and social sciences are satisfied with looking at metaphors, we really prevent ourselves from actually considering the significance of something like neurotransmission. And so, um, so the conversation uh, stops at the level of the sort of layers of meaning through which we perceive the world. And we don't, uh, we, we, we haven't for, uh, for a couple of decades in feminist theory, at least really uh, allowed ourselves to, to wrestle with, the ontology or the essence of the real itself. So there is a one way to put this, perhaps a little simplistic, is that we're really talking at again at the level of, of differences between fields. In this case, biology versus, let's say, feminist theory or, or, or science studies. We're really talking about the old nature-nurture dichotomy, right? We're talking about a situation where, again, to simplify. Historically, biologists have either discarded, discounted, or left out the uh, role of of nurture in this particular case. In the case of human beings, of course, mostly culture, uh, although there is a physical environment that is part of that nurturing um, as well. And on the other hand, you you might say that scholars from the other side of the divide is sort of Try to to ignore uh, the the fact that yes, there is a culture, but that culture is actually based on something else, and that something else is uh, is a biology. Without a particular kind of biology, you don't have culture to begin with, for instance, most most obviously. So you're trying to sort of go beyond this 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 nature nurture thing. Finally, <laughs> because it would be a good idea. <laughs> I, I think. Uh, a lot of people are, are, are now yeah. uh, pushing that uh, that dichotomy a lot. There's a lot of pressure on that, and there has been for some time, but it hasn't been quite clear in f- feminist theory quite how to move forward until maybe until recently. Um, but but you're exactly right. So uh, a great deal of the suspicion of the hard sciences from feminist perspectives has been driven by a. a a social constructionist sense that what's significant about the world and in the world is created by human hands, uh, so to speak, or human minds, uh, and not by biology. And thinking of that as distinct from biology. So uh, a representationalist or symbolic view of culture that um, that allows for historicity, historical variation, cultural variation. Why is this so important? I think it's obvious to feminists, but it's maybe important to point out for uh, for everyone to think about why, why is this so significant? Well, of course, 
in feminist theory and uh, feminist scholarship, we've been considering the issue of uh, gender difference and sex difference. And the birth of feminist theory really comes about through struggling with trying to figure out the significance and the source uh, the ideology of um, our conceptions of gender. What, where does gender come from? And feminist theorists have argued that gender is the creation of culture. Sex is the biological body, but what really matters is what we make of it and the, the, sort of the means that we create from it. Um, and, and that basic assumption is at the heart of a great deal of feminist thought. But I might also add that uh, feminist thinkers share this, too, with anthropologists and cultural anthropologists, I right. should say, and sociologists and other folks in the social sciences whose bread and butter has really been to investigate what, um, what cultures do to create the world, and independently uh, sorry, of biology. Just yeah. to clarify, by, by creating or shaping gender, you're talking about the, uh, I don't know, cultural expectations of the way women behave versus men behave, the way women talk or carry themselves versus the way men do, what women are supposed to like versus what men are supposed to like? Precisely. Okay. So so the, the standard way of thinking about this has been that sex is what you're born with and gender is what we make of it. So sex is really genitals and gender is uh, behavior, attitudes, traits, and roles, mm-hmm. which change over time and in different historical epochs. And so this has been a contest really over nature-nurture. It's been a contest over biological determinism. It's been a fight right. against the arguments that um, that the current gender roles that we have now are biologically shaped. Uh, and so, so there have been a lot of important political reasons why feminists have been reticent to take up the biological sure. body. But let me give you... Um, um, so let's stick with sex for a second because that... That surely ought to interest our, our It's listeners. always a good topic. Yeah, it's always a good topic. Um, so the difference between sex and gender. Um, as you know, there is a way of thinking in biology that has been actually around, as it turns out, for more than a century, but it has un- only taken up uh, roots, especially in, in evolutionary biology and developmental biology, over the last, let's say, 20 years, 20, 30 years. In fact, largely during my own career as a, as a biologist. And that, that is the concept, uh, concept of phenotypic plasticity, this idea that, um, that the best way to think about the, the fact that nature and nurture interacts, the gene and environment interact, um, is that uh, to, to think in terms of, yes, the, the genes or the genetic environment do pose certain limits and, and, and certain parameters to what a body and a behavior can be. There are certain kinds of behavior. You know, I can't fly, for instance, on my own uh, recognizing on, on, on power. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. It's, it's really annoying, but it's, uh, you know, it's just the way it is. And that is, in fact, the determination of my genes. That is, there is there's something in the, in the um, uh, genetic and developmental structure of a human being that makes it impossible for us to, to fly. So certain kinds of behaviors are not, are not possible. On the other hand, there is a large variety of behaviors in human beings in particular, but of course also in other mammals, um, that are made possible across a range. Uh, and that range depends, but it's not entirely constrained or time limited by, by the genetic background, right? So is that a, a reasonable way to think, for instance, about the difference between sex and gender? In which case, what would turn out to be the case is not that gender is culture and sex is biology, but that the two interact. That is, the gender is not independent of the biology, but it has a certain degree of freedom. That degree of freedom depends on the plasticity that human gene genomes allow for that sort of thing. Now, the plasticity can be very high. Um, in fact, the plasticity of certain behavioral traits can be so high that you are, you're going to be hard-pressed finding any genetic signature 
uh, on that behavior. But nonetheless, it's a matter of quantity. It's a matter of, you know, there's, there's a certain modularity that you can do. There are certain things you can do and certain things you cannot. I, I have a complicated answer to that question. Well, that was a complicated question, yes. so it's fair enough. So, so first, uh, where I was going with, with that earlier comment, I don't think we got to, was, was exactly where you're, where you're headed, okay. which is that uh, the, this nature-nurture dichotomy is now being broken down, um, not just in the sciences, but also in the humanities and, and the social sciences. And there's a kind of a, a convergence to some degree um, in, in terms of our mutual interest in getting beyond this very limited way of thinking about this kind of gap between nature and nurture. And so in the sciences, we have epigenetics, for example, that's, um, uh, that's articulating this incredibly complex relationship between the environment and the phenotype. And in, um, in feminist theory and in social theory more generally, we have this neo-materialist uh, movement, which we could describe as a, an interest in rethinking uh, the biological body, getting closer to biology, thinking about new ways of considering uh, biology that are not biologically determinist or fixed or simplistic. So there has been an assumption that biology or understandings of biology are incredibly simplistic, and now there's a new acknowledgement, which is what I'm interested in, among feminist theorists and cultural studies scholars and people in the humanities, that, that the sciences these days are incredibly complex uh, and are addressing a, a very dynamic kind of biological body that's in constant engagement with its environment. So we're exploring this, these very features that you're pointing out. Um, how can we apply this to gender and sex? I don't think we, uh, it's a very simple answer. Um, I'm, I'm tempted to just in, to, uh, to, to stop and say that um, there clearly is sex difference and that's something that's hard for feminists to admit, but we all acknowledge it. We have um, well, you mean in, you there. Why, in, yeah, why behavior, or yeah. uh, you don't just mean in body, no, right? No, I even mean in body. So Anne Fausto Sterling, so, uh, even Anne Fausto Sterling, for example, yeah. uh, wrote this famous book called *The Five Sexes*, where she looks at the sort of uh, chromosomal variation between uh, males and females and finds that it's not so simple. It's not just XX and XY. That there are this, all of these uh, much more ref, uh, finer differences in chromosomal variation that can determine sex. Uh, and beyond that, we've now seen um, 20 or 30 years of a uh, uh, queer activist movement that has reminded us of the, uh, the presence and vibrancy of intersex communities and uh, right. transsexual communities. And so, so even, uh, even the very basic uh, distinction between male and female is, is under heavy contestation right now uh, in culture and, and in what exactly that means. But- Saying it's black and white, though, or saying it's not black and white is different from saying that there are no physical differences between Precisely. across that spectrum. Precisely. So no one's saying that latter thing, right? No. Okay. I, I hope checking. not. No. Okay. <laughs> no. No. I almost that, didn't ask, that but would I be wanted strange. to make sure. No, yes. I think okay. I think it's worth I think it's worth asking, but but um, but I but I think it would be a terrible shame to deny um, uh, physicality. Uh, and so, but, but the question really is then, uh, what is the significance, and not just the cultural, but what's also the biological significance of XX and XY? And there are arguments, as you know, you had uh, Cordelia Fine on this program, so she talked a lot about brain organization theory, right. which argues that the uh, distinction between XX and XY um, becomes not just a matter of uh, distinguishing in uh, 
distinct reproductive organs, but it, it affects brain organization in the second yes. trimester of pregnancy. And so we end up with this, these uh, biologically male and biologically female brains. Now, I think there's a arsenal of critique of this of this uh, research now uh, by by Cordelia Fine, by Rebecca Jordan Young, by uh, by Anne Fausto Sterling, and by um, a, a lot of folks who really look at the very limited way in which uh, the researchers have considered. Uh, sex difference and gender difference and the relation between the two. And so they have made a lot of assumptions that we might call heteronormative. In other words, they've measured differences between men and women, assuming that there are only two groups to begin with, and also assuming that certain attributes are genuinely feminine and other attributes are genuinely masculine and so on. And they're, they're, they're better people to talk to about um, the, the details of this research. But, but I think um, it's too quick and fast and easy to say that our our current knowledge about gender difference can simply be mapped onto our new understanding of phenotypic complexity. I think the new science of epigenetics uh, and the, the new understanding of the brain plasticity is going to actually press us to reconsider the complexity of gender in the brain, make yeah. us consider no, that, maybe some more, more diversity than we were ready yeah, to acknowledge. I, I, I think, I, I think that's, a, that's a fair point. But I, I still need to go back to what Julia was saying a minute ago, which is um, what the science is discovering, uh, both the concept of gene-environment interactions, the, the epigenetics um, that uh, they're bringing in, um, is that there is a lot more variation and there is a lot more complexity than people thought. That's fair, not only fair to say, but that's actually typical of science in general. You know, the more we dig into things, the more we find out that things are actually complicated, particularly so in biology. So that is interesting, I think. Um, it's not necessarily surprising, but it is definitely interesting. And it does have, obviously, consequences, including the consequences for, you know, for, for our, the way in which we, we see gender roles, differences between sexes, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. That said... Uh, it seems from a purely biological perspective, it does remain the, the fact that, yes, there is more variation than just the X, Y, but it does, you, you use the word uh, uh, heteronormativity, which is interesting because it depends in which way you deploy in that word. So if you're, if you're deploying that word in terms of, you know, norm, actual normativity, meaning things ought to be one way or another. Uh, then uh, I think I'm going to find myself on your side of the debate and clearly say, no, wait a minute, we're talking about human behaviors and and human beings can or should be able to do whatever the heck they want. Um, Nonetheless, within limits of allowing other people to do the same, uh, nonetheless, if by normativity you actually instead using the term sort of as a biologist would use it, so it, as in there is a normal distribution, you know, there's a bell-shaped distribution or mm-hmm. in, the, in the case of, of, of sexes, there is a bimodal distribution. There's two, there are two peaks and there's a lot of variation, but there still are two peaks. And so if you use the word normativity in that sense, which is actually a descriptive sense, it's really not a normativity sense. It's a, it's a descriptive as normal as in this is the statistical distribution of this particular attribute. Um, then it seems to me that progress will be made more by acknowledging that there is such a thing as a whatever distribution, the, the science, the best distribution of the traits that, that the science is able to describe, acknowledge that there is that, and then deny that that has actually any normativity in terms of how people should behave, rather but, than denying the, the, what the science is suggesting. Let's, let's put this into a concrete example so sure. it doesn't sound so abstract for your listeners. So one way of thinking about this problem is to think about gender difference in the brain. So do men and mm-hmm. women think differently? Right. Um, 
So uh, lots of cognitive tests have established, you know, in some degree or another that men perform differently on um, social intelligence tasks than women, that women seem to have more uh, empathy than men and that seem to be able to understand another person's thoughts or what they're thinking or feeling uh, uh, better. Uh, so, so what does that mean? Well, um, there, are, there are many ways to think about this, given what we've already said. On the one hand, we could simply argue, as brain organization theory does, that men, male and females are different. They're different because of uh, evolutionary imperatives, uh, and that this difference is really established very, very early on before birth, uh, mm-hmm. and it, it just unfolds over time. Uh, I think that's a very hard argument to sustain if you actually look at the kind of um, uh, inter, excuse me, intrasex diversity in social intelligence, some right. men and women. So it, it, it may be true that we can find differences between men and women, but there are also incredible differences among men, incredible differences among women, right. uh, and so on. Um, now, having said that, the, the research on brain plasticity suggests that experience has an inc- incredibly important role in shaping uh, brain structures. Right. So, for example, um, styles of thought. We could think of styles of thought as something that's... Um, uh, a kind of uh, neurophysiological habit uh, that develops over time. Sure. And um, given the brain's plasticity, but also given the gendered character of our social world, it wouldn't really be that surprising that not only do men and women have different social intelligence in terms of how they perform on tasks, but also that they might even have different brain structures because of that. Sure. So, so one of the questions is why? Is it because they're sort of destined to do to be this way, given the release of hormones during the second trimester as as as, as prenates, or is it because of gendered socialization and training that encourages certain kinds of emotion work on the part of women and discourages certain kinds of emotion work on the part of men? This is a very complicated question. Yes, and I, I actually yeah. find it very um, annoying, quite frankly, even uh, when when scientists, and especially when when the the, the general media, the, the journalists talk about these issues as you know, oh, there are biological different. The, the word that is often used is there. Are biological differences between men and women. And they just mean there are differences between men and women. Correct. Yes. Because that's what it means, right? I mean, <laughs> yes. as you've just pointed out, basically, okay, so even if we do agree that there are certain differences in whatever, brain structure in this case, or behavior between men and women, yes, well, of course there are differences. The question is, what what those difference, where did those differences come from? And the fact that you have a different brain as an adult tells you very little about, if, if anything at all, about mm-hmm. where those differences come from. Are they the difference because you use different parts of the brain different, differentially throughout your, your, your development, or is it because, in fact, there are genetic differences? Mm-hmm. Precisely. However, and, and that, by the way, is the kind of question that is really, really difficult to answer for human beings. You can do that much better with mice. Because it, you can do experiments. <laughs> it's, it's also difficult, difficult to answer using uh, something like brain imaging technology, yes. which can't tell you anything about right. the, the cause of a structural but I think we should just take a bunch of babies and take them away from their families and then raise half of them, you know. In, in a Skinner box. Yes. And that's right. <laughs> it's a fantastic idea. <laughs> that's a fantastic idea. A I don't know why of, this never gets approved by the Subject Board. I don't, I don't know. But, but let me ask one question. Um, well, let me so, just point yeah, out something that you said, and, and I'll just draw it out a little bit for our listeners. Uh, so people, when they say that differences are biological, they often mean 
to say that they're innate and they're not right. the same thing. No, and so this exactly. is a, this is a, a huge, a, a really considerable logical fallacy. So we can, even if we can establish that, you know, through fMRI scans, that there are differences between men and women in particular brain structures, um, saying they're biological is not the same thing as saying they're innate. So right. we don't, we, they can be biological without Most being definitely. innate, of course. Now, the problem that, that I often have with these discussions is that given that it is very difficult and Arguably next to impossible if we start talking, uh, um, uh, taking on board also the kind of ethical issues that, that Julia was talking about. I mean, human beings are really I don't difficult. Know. What's ex- wrong with my idea? I don't know. Well, human beings are very difficult experimental subjects for these kind, for gene environment interaction studies, okay? which is why when I do, was doing these things, I was working on plants. They're much easier. They don't scream, there's no blood, nothing. And you can clone them, you can do all sorts of stuff. You can grow them fast, you know, in a matter of weeks or months, as opposed to human beings taking you know, decades to do that sort of stuff. And that's without even getting to the ethical uh, issues. So it is very difficult, if not next to impossible, to do actual, really well-controlled gene-environment interaction studies, which are the only ones that are going to tell you, you know, the, what's actually going on in terms of dynamics between genes and environments. That's that. We do know that there are genetic influences, of course, on, on, on human structure and you know, phenotypes in general. And we do know that there is a lot of environmental influences. We just don't know how to combine. There's no, 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 no particularly good way of, of looking at how the two actually interact throughout development. Now, that said, um, sometimes I get a little worried by the attitude that I see um, from some people uh, about sort of rejecting a priori the idea that there might in fact be some innate differences between whatever, you name it, genders in this case. Um, because first of all, that's an empirical question. And so it seems to me that as a philosopher or as a sociologist or as somebody who's interested in, you know, I don't know, human rights, you don't necessarily want to hang your arguments on an empirical question that you know, tomorrow may be settled in the wrong way, quote unquote, from, from what, what you're thinking. And then what? Then what are you going to do about it? Number one. Number two, um, so what if it turns out that there, is, there are, in fact, some, there is some degree of innate differences? I mean, uh, it's not like often, as, as you pointed out a minute ago, this debate is, is actually it's cast in terms of determinism. But the environment can be just as deterministic ask Skinner, um, as the genes. Because you can, I mean, you know, uh, the, 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 the scenario that um, was envisaged in, in Brave New World was all based on, about, on, on environmental determinism, not genetic one. So what do you okay. mean by the environment being deterministic? Oh, well, that, that you can control the environment. You know, so if the environment has certain effects, let's say education, for mm-hmm. instance, right? Uh, uh, it's, got, it's going to have certain reliable effects. If you educate people or you don't educate people one way or the other, you're going to get certain outcomes in terms of you know, behavior. Uh, then you can have just as much determinism, meaning that, okay, I know that environment A is going to cause this particular type of mm-hmm. behavior preferentially. And in fact, it's, in some sense, it's even more dangerous because the environment is very easy to manipulate. Well, in- the, the, a great example of this is from the 1970s when uh, John Money and his colleagues uh, were arguing that, um, that, gender differences, that gender differences are entirely uh, socially constructed, um, but also that the sex difference made no, um, made no impact on a person's identity or uh, sense of desire. So... What they really were arguing was that the body wasn't so important, right. that it was actually what was in the mind and, the, and, the, and what was inculcated in the culture. And this ended up uh, in a kind of disastrous program for intersex infants, uh, mm-hmm. where uh, Money and his colleagues at Johns Hopkins uh, began a program of uh, treatment for intersex infants that essentially assigned them a gender uh, 
and assumed that they would um, ultimately be perfectly comfortable in that gender because culture and society mm-hmm. can really shape your gender. It really is it, what your body says is kind of irrelevant. And uh, it's the, kind of the next best thing to my experiment, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's yes. precisely from, right from the environmental perspective. Yeah. Sort of the that's genetic, absolutely right. right, and it didn't turn out so well. So, yeah. so I, I encourage readers to look to look up John Money and and, um, and intersex uh, surgeries and, and and think about this a little bit more clearly um, because I think the lessons have been chastening for social constructionists uh, about this question. Now, um, there's another uh, feminist scholar who wrote back in 1994 uh, this, this book called Volatile Bodies. She's, uh, her name's Elizabeth Gross. She's an Australian scholar who's now based in the U.S. And she made this argument 25 years ago, uh, much the astonishment of the feminist community, that sex difference is real. Um, that sex difference actually okay. exists, um, that there is, uh, it, it means its meaning is uh, sort of wide open for discussion. Um, but she was interested in looking at Darwin. She was look, looking at sexual selection and natural selection and doing this kind of interesting and creative rereading of Darwin, a project she's continued for the last 20 years, uh, and made this really interesting claim that um, w- would be unsurprising to many outsiders. But within feminist theory, it was quite surprising to to, to read a feminist scholar who was arguing uh, passionately for the significance of sex in the body. Hmm. Now, what she wasn't doing was saying, you know, sex is heteronormative, sex means this, sex de- determines your orientation. Right. She wasn't making those claims at all. Uh, instead, uh, she sort of opened up biology to thinking about, um, in creative, and, and if I may say kind of queer ways, what um, what sexual difference might mean in both in uh, non-human species and and among humans. And, and by mean here, do you mean determ- like how it might affect people's yes. behavior and I, self-conception? He, th- thank you for clarifying okay. that, because now we, ha- uh, Julia, because now we have to worry about what we mean when we say mean. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> right. We do. But but w- where I was going with this earlier conversation was that the, that um, in addition to the to this to the biological sciences getting more interested in complexity and um, and plasticity feminist theory is getting more interested in thinking about biology as being significant, as meaning something. And I don't mean sort of as having a, a social constructionist kind of right. interpretation, but, but, but as being significant, uh, whatever it is that we make of it, that, that biology itself, the flesh itself, uh, is, has meaning. But what's so important about this project is that um, feminists are arguing now that we have to take biology seriously without the burden of some of the simplistic heteronormative frameworks we've been using to look at sex difference, like brain organization theory, which is actually, uh, Rebecca Jordan-Young has argued, is really plainly unscientific and unethical, that in fact the methodology is so so tied to an ideology of sex difference that it really actually can't find a, a, a more interesting and complex story about right. what that sex difference might mean. But let's separate the two um, aspects there, as in it, something it can be scientifically incorrect, and then something can be unethical. And of course, something can be both. Now, it seems to me that, uh, like Cordelia Fine, for instance, does in, in her latest book that we discussed on this, on this podcast, um, the best, the most convincing critique of bad science is scientific. That is, you're going to go in as a neurobiologist and you, and you say, no, my friend, you think that that's what these experiments show. But in fact, here's, here's the methodological problems, here's the interpretation problems, here's the data analysis problems, and so on and so forth. So let me specify, for Rebecca Jordan-Young, she argues that, the, that 
that brain organization theory, uh, theory research is unethical, not because it's politically problematic, but okay. because it's, um, it's unsound. And that... Because um, the deck is stacked? Yes. Okay. Right. Okay, yeah, that, that's fine. But as I said, you know, that, so... so um, the, I, I hear what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I, what I'm hearing from you, Massimo, is that you're worried that political questions can censor, in a sense, inquiry. And I agree with you. Yeah. And I think this, in fact, has been the case in much feminist right. thinking for four decades now. Yeah. Um, it has been, to some degree, taboo to talk about sex difference as being, quote-unquote, right. real. Um, and to even talk about biology as being significant. And right. this is something that urgently needs correction in feminist thinking. Yeah. But I also want to make the case that this is, offers a really wonderful interdisciplinary opportunity to kind of bring feminist insights yeah, to absolutely. biology. Yeah, absolutely. I, then, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, we don't have too much time left. And I, I, was, I really wanted to talk a little bit more about methodology. Um, so uh, when we were talking earlier about what meaning is invested in different practices of, with the body and what meaning is invested in, um, in gender, or I guess sex, I should say, um, I, I'm so interested in these questions of, of meaning, but I find them really hard to pin down in sort of a precise, like testable way. And so I guess, I, like, let's take the example that you first brought up of the, uh, the way that scientists had sort of, um, the theory was anyway, that they had invested like gendered meaning in glial cells and what was the, uh, uh neurons. Neurons. yeah, neurons. Yeah, neurons. Um, and that that had influenced the, you know, the degree to which they like, I don't know, investigated how important each of those two things might have been in the brain. How would you, it seems plausible, uh, it's a good story, how would you test whether that is true, or not even test, I'm not even asking for a randomized controlled trial here, that's too much, <laughs> but, but how, how would you gather reliable evidence about whether or not that was in fact the case? Well, that wasn't my study, but let's see if I can do a thought experiment. Um, I think... I think this is, you know, it's obviously a hermeneutic problem. What does it's, that mean? A, it's an interpretive interpretation, problem. Right. It's a problem of interpretation. So this is going to be a little bit more art than science. But, um, but I think if I were rethinking this study with your question in mind, I would try to consider how the information about glial cells was or was not taken up in a timely fashion or um, was suppressed or ignored uh, and, tr- and try to figure out what the mechanisms were by which uh, neurons became so much more significant. Now, there are other methodologies that you could use, like actor network theory or is for, for Bruno Latour's work. or um, other. What is that? Uh, so, so science studies scholars, including Bruno Latour and some others, have been looking at the practice of science, so the practice of making the significance of objects in, in the laboratory. Uh, and so what they're doing is tracing all of the different components to the extent that it's possible. And I said this is sort of hermeneutic and ethnographic rather than quantitative. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, trying to figure out how it is that a story, an understanding, a narrative in science gets built through uh, something like looking at multiple actors. So funding mechanisms, instruments, uh, uh, conceptual frameworks, uh, and how scientific paradigms, I put it in sort of Thomas Kuhn's language, how scientific paradigms get sustained or overturned through uh, the kind of institutional uh, and conceptual and technological developments. But me- meaning is all sort of an internal, you know, I have associations with gender when I'm thinking about glial cells or something, but 
it's never it, it's hard to imagine how it could ever be made explicit and and sort of on the record anywhere what Here, meaning i have invested in things well here's a better here's a more straightforward example okay. which we could go back to the sex difference research or the brain organization theory research we could look at uh what kinds of uh, assumptions are being used in designing the methodologies of brain organization theory research. So, for example, do we begin with assuming that there are um, only male and female subjects? That's a very, very basic one. Are there, right. or do, we include, do we include a kind of diversity of subjects, including intersex subjects? When we look at um, sexual orientation, are we looking at an array of sexual orientation? How are we making those determinations? And are we coding that as masculine and feminine behavior? Mm-hmm. So there are many, many examples that Cordelia Fine gives and that Rebecca Jordan-Young give of decisions that are made along the way uh, that put people into categories of both male and female, but also masculine and feminine. And those decisions are, are really saturated with cultural assumptions. Mm-hmm. Now, here, let's, do a, 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 let's reverse our question in a sense. How might we do it differently how might we instead of right. testing instead of testing whether the science the current science is sexist or heteronormative why don't we think about what would it look like if the science was not uh was explicitly and consciously and reflexively not sexist and heteronormative well one thing it might do is take seriously the diversity that we already know is out there in the world so the diversity of human behavior, the diversity of sexuality, the diversity of uh, social movements, of queer movements, of, of pleasures and desires that anthropologists, sociologists, and anyone watching contemporary television can tell you is already out there in the world. Yeah. Uh, if we let a really complex idea of sexuality and gender in, uh, uh, saturate scientific research, I think we would see a lot of different kinds of more creative studies. Mm-hmm. Yes. The, the only thing that I would add to that is that it's very difficult to do sort of counterfactual, essential, essentially, of scientific research um, for obvious reasons. Because, you know, for instance, in the, in the area of sociology of science, which we should probably devote a whole other um, episode to, but in the area of sociology of science, there's this, this interesting idea of, the, um, of a radical underdetermination of theories by the data. That is, that there's always many, many more interpretations uh, available, and, and therefore it becomes uh, an issue of, you know, how is it a particular scientific theory is picked um, becomes more of a social issue and negotiating between different scientists with different sort of views of how the theory should work and so on and so forth, as opposed to being determined by nature itself, right? Now, the question is, there's a famous example of... The, of um, uh, somebody who has actually done tried to, to do the work of saying, well, what would a particular discipline look like if it had been done differently? That's uh, Ian Pinkering's um, uh, book on the construction of quarks, right? Uh, where he tries to imagine an entire fundamental physics done without the concept of quarks. And it's an interesting exercise, and it takes a hell of a lot of work, and by the way, a hell of a lot of knowledge of physics, fundament, you know, fundamental physics. But my, my understanding, and you know, I'm not a physicist, nor am I a philosopher of physics. I'm a philosopher of biology. But my understanding is that that work has, in fact, been picked apart because it's very difficult to do. That is, both the physicists and philosophers of physics come in and say, you know, nice try. But as it turns out, at least in this particular case, it's hard enough to come up with one sensible theory that fits the data, uh, you don't have a radical underdetermination. You may have some underdetermination. There's always some degree of underdetermination, but it's certainly not radical. And if it's not radical, that leaves less room for the sociology and the psychology of science to play in. Now, that's an empirical question because there may be other areas. I'm, I'm sure some areas of biology, especially human biology, there's a hell of a lot more 
um, the determination than in fundamental physics. And so it's, it's an open question. But that is why I'm particularly attracted by the um, approaches like people, uh, of people like uh, Fine. And, and I was going to sort of close because we're pretty, pretty close to, to, to closing time. But, uh, we are by mentioning, five minutes away. From yeah, <laughs> by, by managing, uh, m- mentioning Helen Longino's uh, research. On yes, the, she's, right. she's a great person to say right now. She is. And so her, I, I had to recommend, I, I recommended, I think, already a couple of, of her books on, on these podcasts on and off for, for different reasons. But her, uh, one of her points is that the best um, uh, safeguard toward the kind of bias you were talking about earlier in sort of early 20th century neurobiology, for instance, uh, is simply to bring in more scientific perspectives into the scientific process. That is, bring in, you know, let, 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 let's have women and, and uh, you know, minorities and different ethnic groups and so on and so forth become scientists. Do the science because that's the thing that allows those people to say, first of all, those people are more alert to possible biases from from coming from other quarters but they also have the technical know-how to actually say look this is not the way you're going to do that well in the case i I think it's appropriate to mention then uh, debelina roy's work so she is a a neuroscientist who has made this argument in particular about neuroscientists Uh, so there are people now who are bringing up the you know are continuing this tradition started by longino and sandra harding and evelyn fox keller back in the 1980s uh, who are who are really pushing this uh, kind of feminist empiricist approach. Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, we are negative seven minutes over, but it was a negative seven minutes well spent. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> we are wrapping up the section of the podcast now, but we will move on now to the Rationally Speaking Picks. I'd like to take this moment to remind our listeners that if you're a fan of the Rationally Speaking podcast, you'll definitely enjoy this year's Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism, which will be held in New York, New York, uh, the weekend of April 5th through 7th, 2013. Uh, Go to nexus.org now to get your tickets. They're on sale. In addition to Massimo and I, you'll also find a lineup of great speakers, including the SGU, Simon Singh, Michael Shermer, and our keynote speaker, physicist Leonard Mladenov, author of The Drunkard's Walk. Nexus.org, that's N-E-C-S-S dot org. Go get your tickets now. Every episode, uh, we pick a suggestion for our listeners that has tickled our rational fancy. This time, we ask our guest, Victoria Pitt, for her suggestion. Victoria. Well, lately I've been reading some work in disability studies, and I'm really interested in disability studies because it is a place where all of the uh, hot issues that I care about uh, are, are really being uh, debated for, um, uh, at, a, at a very serious level. For example, uh, to what extent are uh, bodies socially constructed and to what extent are they uh, uh, biologically determined? Well, disability studies has argued for decades that disability is something that is, uh, is a social construction. Disability is a way of uh, thinking about bodies that uh, privileges some over others. So, for example, um, it's it's a, a way of looking at the built environment and the choices that we make in terms of building the society that we have that disadvantage uh, some people uh, who have uh, maybe different capacities than others. So this has been a, a really important argument uh, to 
produce a disability rights movement. And at the same time, uh, there, are, there are new writers in disability studies who are thinking more seriously about the biological body and thinking about pain and thinking about um, uh, capacity and incapacity and the seriousness of that. And so to some degree, there is a sense that the politicization of disability as an identity category or as, as a norm or a, a contested norm has to some degree elided the the very fleshy experience of disability. And so lately I've been reading a new piece by Rosemary Garland Thompson, uh, who wrote uh, published an article in Hypatia called uh, Misfits. It was published in 2011. Uh, maybe I'll just read a sentence or two from it. So she describes, she wants to rethink disability as, as a, a matter of misfitting. Uh, so fitting and misfitting, she says, denote an encounter in which two things come together in either harmony or disjunction. When the shape and substance of these two things correspond in their union, they fit, and a misfit, conversely, describes an incongruent relationship between two things, a square peg and a round hole. The problem with misfit, then, inheres not in either of the two things, but rather in their juxtaposition, the awkward attempt to fit them together. When the spatial and temporal context shifts, so does the fit with its meanings and consequences. And so what she's really trying to do here is trying to identify a very physical experience of disability that involves misfitting. So say having a wheelchair that doesn't fit in, a, in an aisle in a grocery store is a, is a, is a very physical and, and materially real experience. Um, but, but it also involves the, uh, a set of social decisions about the built environment. So in other words, this is, a, this is an account of disability that doesn't choose nature or nurture. Uh, it looks instead at the relationality of disability as a, as a matter of a constant relation between the body and the, and the world. Great, thanks. And we'll post a link. Uh, I don't know if the full article is available it online. Is. It is great. We'll post a link to that um, up on the Rationally Speaking podcast website. Um, that wraps it up for this episode of Rationally Speaking. Victoria, it has been a pleasure having you uh, on the show today. It's been great. Thanks so much. This concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.